And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin. He is the president of the Center for Cultural Leadership. And Andrew, it is an honor to have you on with us today. Well, every time you ask, Dan, I appreciate it, and uh, it's great to be with you again. Um, there's so many things we can talk about, Andrew. There's um, you know, a seemingly moral breakdown that's increasing in our society and all of that. But there's an interesting aspect that you recently wrote about that has to do with funerals. Of all things, <laughs> funerals, and uh, whether we like it or not, Funerals are near and dear to our hearts, not that we enjoy them, but uh, increasingly in my life, uh, more funerals are happening because I'm getting older and my friends are passing or else um, loved ones pass. Uh, I recently attended a graveside service for uh, my aunt, and um, these these things happen. Um there's funerals and there's funerals. Tell us a little bit about this article that you that's hot off the press that you just wrote. Yes, uh, Dan, it's called Gnostic Funerals. And uh, like you, uh, this is on my mind and heart because I've conducted two funerals over the last couple of months, two, Christian, two Christians, dear Christian friends, and... Uh, that fact uh, obliged me to think through some of these issues and how a uh, Christian approach to funerals is very different from a non-Christian approach. Uh, My concern, however, was the extent to which uh, an ancient Christian heresy, in fact the oldest as far as we know, Christian heresy uh, in the church, Gnosticism, has impacted the thinking of the church and is a particularly graphic during the uh, conduct of uh, many funerals today. So I thought I would write about that, and if your uh, listeners want to go into it a little more depth, they can just type my name, Andrew Sandlin, Gnostic Funerals, and I'm sure it'll come up in a, in a search engine. But uh, that was my uh, concern, and uh, led me to make several points that perhaps we can enumerate now, if you'd like. Yeah, that would be great. And um, I, I just, I just want to say that, that, Andrew, so often is the case where uh, the Christian um, is divorced from this world, and yet <laughs> we're in the world. And, and you know, we shouldn't derive our power or our, you know, sense of being from the system of this world, but certainly as God enables us in this world uh, to bring every thought captive to him, to take dominion for him, and so we work in this world, and uh, yeah, so that that's the background I come from. I think it's yours as well. Yes, no, you're exactly right. I was just reading a, a noted writer, Colin Gunton, that made the important point that uh, Augustine, the great Western father, though he said many good things, helped to sort of introduce some sort of soft core false ideas into the church, which is basically the notion that uh, the goal of the individual and the church is escape. Uh, the world is bad, it's evil, and therefore are constantly looking to the beatific vision, you know, the great, the great beyond, to get away from all of this evil and have mm-hmm. perfection in the next life. Uh, the interesting thing, though he was generally orthodox, no question about it, there is this ancient heresy of Gnosticism that influenced the church and sadly influences it today. Gnosticism, uh, don't have time to go into detail, but is essentially the idea that creation itself is bad, substandard, 
and even evil. The ancient Gnostics taught that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the God of the Old Testament was an inferior God that somehow was mistaken and created uh, the material world, materiality, including human bodies. And that uh, these uh, somehow uh, were going to uh, benefit uh, his, uh, the, world, the way that the world was. Well, of course, this is a, a uh, false way of thinking. Uh, Gnosticism is an ancient heresy. The Bible teaches that God created uh, everything and that it was not only good, but very good. Therefore, the Christian way of thinking is that the problems in the world are due to man's sin, that is, his ethical rebellion, and not to the structure of the universe. But if you believe in Gnosticism, you will believe that the human body itself is evil and that the great goal of life is escape from the material world. Now, let's get back to funerals because that's the main point. I said earlier that it's during funerals that this false Gnostic view, as it's influenced Christianity, really can come to the fore. So here's one of them. I'll mention perhaps three in this um, discussion today. But to one of them is the idea that, and the minister will often say this, quoting the Apostle Paul, that the individual, if it's a believer, has, if he's a believer, has died and gone to be with the Lord. That, of course, is true. Uh, Paul says that very plainly. To be absent from the body is to be present or at home with the Lord. And that is one of the great blessings of knowing that when we pass away, we'll be ushered into the Lord's presence. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, they stop there. And uh, that is a mistake, because in the Bible, the great hope of individual soteriology, or salvation doctrine, as it relates to the future, to eschatology of the individual, is not simply that we will see the Lord, but that we'll participate in the great resurrection. Yes. That's the key. And the Bible teaches that in the resurrection, and we can think about, and your listeners can read uh, Revelation chapter uh, 21, in the resurrection, the, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, new as in resurrected, renovated, the same heavens, the same earth, and yet purged of all of the evil. And uh, our present bodies, though they have died, though they've even decayed, miraculously God will reconstitute them. Uh, they will uh, be as almost a sort of a creational, the way that Adam would have been, or perhaps even better, but certainly very physical bodies, and yet the Bible says the incorruptible. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and I'm not sure if you've had this experience, Dan, I've had uh, this experience many times, at Christian funerals today, that's not really the hope that is held out. The hope that is held out is the individual has died and gone to be with the Lord, and uh, therefore uh, everything is fine, and that's all that we should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but in the Bible, uh, again, uh, and Paul makes this very plain in 1 Corinthians 15, and in a number of other texts, our hope, our individual hope, is not merely seeing the Lord, but as the Old Testament says, uh, in my flesh I shall see God. So the resurrection was even hinted at in the Old Testament. Uh, so I think that's one major problem that uh, we see and where we can see the hint of Gnosticism uh, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in Christian funerals today. Yes. I sit here thinking about my own um, dad's um, tombstone that we put in place not too long ago. He's been he's been gone for a little over a year now, 
And one of the scripture verses we put on the front of it was, uh, I am the resurrection and the life, Amen. Jesus. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful fact that there's more than just going to heaven, quote-unquote. Uh, certainly when the loved one dies and he's a Christian or she's a Christian, she goes into the immediate presence of Christ. But as you're pointing out, there's so much more. There is, and I think uh, underlying this is, uh, is another problem, and here's where, again, this, there's a hint of Gnosticism, that to be disembodied, uh, to live only as a, quote, soul, although I believe that term is greatly misunderstood among modern people, to live without a body, to be disembodied in the Lord's presence, is somehow preferable to having a body, perhaps even a resurrection body. This is the idea that, well, when I get rid of my body, I'll get rid of my sin. Uh, well, that of itself, it's true that when we die, we no longer sin, but we dare not <laughs> get the idea that without a body, that somehow there's perfection. I mean, the most evil being in the universe is without a body. Uh, good Thanks. point. So our, our sinfulness is certainly much beyond our body, though our bodies, too, are sinful. We're, uh, we're t- totally depraved. But many Christians seem to think that that state of being without a body is, is a desirable state. And yet if you read the first few verses of Second Corinthians 5, Paul actually talks about this. And he looks with some trepidation about existing without a body. He says, not that I would be unclothed. He's talking about the body is clothed. He says, I don't want that. He says, I do want to be clothed. And that's mm. led some theologians to believe that when we die, we are granted a temporary body in what's called the intermediate state. Uh, the intermediate state that is between our death and the uh, second coming and the judgment and uh, the resurrection. Uh, Now, here's a key fact. This intermediate state is not something that is, uh, in the God's grand scheme of things, is ultimate or desirable. No. Let's let's think about that for a minute, Dan. had, had uh, Had man and woman, Adam and Eve, never sinned in the garden, well, we know they never would have died. Uh, the Bible says that the death is the consequence of sin. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin is death. The reason we have death in the world is because we have sin in the world. And were there no sin, there would be no death. Well, if that is the case, then this separation of the spirit, of the immaterial part of man, from the body of death is not natural. I've heard people say, and unbelievers, and even some Christians, I'm thinking sometimes, say, death is the most natural thing in the world. I would say just the opposite. I would say death is the most unnatural Mm. thing in the world, in God's good world. It uh, certainly is uh, natural in the fallen world, but the fallen world is not the natural world. It's the world as God had not intended. It's the world that Jesus Christ died to redeem, and he is redeeming uh, gradually. So uh, I think in this way, another way, this notion that, well, the one that's died now, thank God that he's gone and won't have problems with sin anymore. I certainly understand that at death, the pain that, his, uh, that they've endured, that the decedent has endured is gone. That's certainly understandable. But the notion that, well, the individual now has total release and is away from sin, and now ultimately he's gone ultimately to be with the Lord, and that's the final hope. But that's not really the final hope. <laughs> um, the, um, I'll, I'll mention one other thing. There is often, uh, in tandem with this, the idea that, uh, that death is somehow a beautiful thing. I've, I've heard individuals, this goes back, by the way, to uh, Socrates and his death, as Plato related it, that uh, death is peaceful and death is very beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful than death. 
And when you think about it, on the Gnostic premises, that's true, because the Gnostics believed that death is immortal soul inside breaks through this cracked uh, shell of the body and can return to the heavenlies and be what it was intended to be. But that's a pagan view. Mm. Uh, that's not the Christian view. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 makes a startling assertion. He says the last enemy that should be destroyed is death. Now, we might have thought that he would have said that Satan, as the last enemy, will be destroyed. And certainly Satan will be. But his point there is that the final enemy that so plagues us Christians, that robs us of those we love so much, and of the great joys of this life, is death itself. And death will be vanquished. So the idea that death is almost desirable, many Christians hold, and it's a good thing. Well, I'm sorry, but Bible does not hold out death. It's a good thing. It's a consequence of the fallen world. But I think this notion at Christian funerals shows how deeply Gnosticism has infected our thinking. Yeah, it's a very good point. Today we're talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, and he's a friend of the ministry, and we really appreciate him. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned something that uh, caught my eye, and that was the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And the verse prior to that is a fascinating verse for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And um, this is a big deal, is it not? It really is, and that also, I talk about that section of verses in 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul laying out the sequence of redemptive history. Now, if you think about it for a minute, we know that death will not be finally vanquished until the final resurrection. But as you state there in the previous verse, Paul has just said that he, Christ, uh, in his mediatorial reign, must reign until he puts all his enemies down. Well, if that is the case, then that indicates Christ is presently reigning in the earth. Yeah. And as he's presently reigning in the earth, at the very end of that reign, at the very end of that reign, will come the utter destruction of death. Uh, in other words, you, we ourselves today cannot simply postpone the kingdom of God, Christ's reign, until some later time. The notion that Jesus Christ will come again to the earth, and then, and only then he will reign, is false. Paul's point is that when Jesus Christ comes, there's the final exclamation point on history. He's reigning now, then Christ comes, and he vanquishes death in yes. the final resurrection. That is a that that whole sequence of redemptive history there shows and teaches to my way of thinking at least and many others the present powerful reign of Jesus Christ. Yes, this is um, I want to use a word cautiously, but this is liberating for me personally. I I wouldn't um, hardly want to get up in the morning if I didn't know that that God wasn't gradually redeeming the world that by his grace he is transforming things and it's a, it's a marvelous privilege to to participate with god in, in the great commission in in work in godly work and 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 this gives us great uh hope for our present life and certainly that which is to come boy dan i could not agree more and uh, i think you've mentioned a chief point there. The scholars of Gnosticism have pointed out that there was no more pessimistic worldview in the ancient world. Mm. Uh, if you think that this world and the material world is bad and is evil and the goal of life is to escape from it, 
basically our life, the present life, is one of worthlessness and uselessness and almost nihilism. And we're constantly looking for ways to escape. And I must say there are many Christians who might not put it that baldly, but in essence their view is, well, things are getting worse and worse. Now, there's abortion in the world, the rise of homosexuality, the acceptance of it, and pornography and materialism and socialism and evil and all of those things. But I'm going to escape this, and my goal in life is to escape this present world. But in the Bible, uh, God's goal in redemption is never escape, but to change it by the power of the Spirit of God. And you said something there that some Christians would balk at, but is entirely true. God has called us to be his partners in this. Mm. Uh, not as God, of course. We can never be God. There, the Bible plainly teaches the creator-creature distinction. But he has enlisted us. We see it right there in Genesis 1, right there in creation. God created man, the crowning aspect of his creation, and gave him this mandate, what's called the cultural mandate, to take dominion over the earth. Well, God himself could have directly and personally exercised dominion over the earth, but he chose not to do that. He says, under my authority, I'm deputizing you to work alongside me. As Paul says much the same thing in the New Testament, speaking of the early apostles, we're ambassadors for Christ, we're speaking on Christ's behalf. Well, of course, God could cause angels to come down and preach, but he didn't do that. He chose humans, so we are partners with the Lord under his authority at all times to fulfill his task in the earth. Every day, like you said, Dan, every day when I rise, I can rejoice, no matter how, how I feel, how negative or pessimistic thoughts may come in my mind. <laughs> Lord, you've called me to victory. You've called us as your people to victory. We're on the victory side every day, and no matter what difficulties. Yes, we might go through persecution. Yes, we might go through difficulties. But we're going to win, and not just win in the eternal state. We're going to win in time and history by the power of the Spirit of God. Amen. Um, I'm looking here now at this Great Commission, and I just wanted to read it and then comment briefly and maybe have you comment. Uh, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, Somebody once wrote about the greatness of the Great Commission. Isn't this... This is huge, is it not, when he's talking about discipling all the nations? Yes, it's, uh, and the word there, too, is uh, ethnos, that is, people groups. He's not saying there, go out and win a few souls. <clears throat> right. He's saying that the gospel is so powerful, and the, commission, the scope of the commission is so great, that we are called, as the Church of Jesus Christ, to bring entire people groups into the faith. Uh, it's interesting that the great missionary movement uh, launched in the Victorian era in the 19th century actually did that. There have been huge, great, and massive victories. And notice it's founded on a profoundly anti-Gnostic notion <laughs> there right at the beginning. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, you see, the Gnostics would say God really sits enthroned in the heavens. The Gnostic God, of course, is not the Christian God. But their view is that he is high, high up there, remote, totally separate from what's going on in earth. He is far, far away, and what's going on down here has no interest to him. That's the opposite of what Jesus said. He says the Father, God the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. 
which tells us he's, he's vitally interested in the earth. He's vitally interested in this material world. He's vitally interested in our health and in politics and in education and in music, and we would even say technology and to science and all other areas of life. And the goal of the church is to preach the gospel in all of its fullness, the good news, the message of salvation, that in Jesus Christ, God is reversing the effects of sin, beginning on the cross, of course, to bearing in his body the penalty for our sin, and washing away our sins in his own blood, and then rising again victoriously. Essentially, what he's doing there, that point, that death, resurrection, ascension, is the axis of human history. Everything turns on that, because that is an abolition a definitive abolition of the power of sin that works itself out progressively in time and history. And that's why we preach and live the Great Commission. Yes, amen. Well, today we're talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin. And, um, Andrew, tell us a little bit about some of your more recent work that you have been involved with, maybe going to... uh, I think there was a recent sermon I saw posted where you went to another church that um, was established and, and they were installing an elder and the importance of that. How, how about that? How did that go? Yes, that was with my dear friend in Sacramento, Pastor John Stoos at the Church of the King. It was a wonderful, blessed time. I preached uh, from Acts chapter 20 about when Paul called the Ephesian elders, you know, uh, they're right on the seaside, we would say the beach, and they <laughs> came and met him, and he gave them a final exhortation about leading in humility, and he also pointed out their calling to preach, and I love this expression, and the entire whole counsel of God. The one point I made is that a church cannot be healthy if it exists on a partial diet. Yes. Too many churches today exist on a partial diet. If you text in the, in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament epistles of Paul, and maybe some of the Psalms. But beyond that, uh, the problem that Paul's saying by implication is that the church cannot be strong if it doesn't have a diet of the entire Word of God. Uh, another thing he points out there <clears throat> is the importance uh, he warns about the savagery of wolves, of false teachers, and that uh, the minister must expose false teaching at all times, and do so, uh, by the way, with great humility and great tears, he says. Uh, one thing I pointed out, a, a text from Ian Bounds, a statement from the great Methodist. Uh, uh, he said that the great rule of the minister in the church is a scepter of love, and if a pastor loves his people, mm. then and they know it, then uh, they will follow him. But anyway, it was a wonderful time and very well attended, and the young man that was ordained seems to be a mighty man of God, so uh, it was, a, it was uh, a great blessing to participate in that. Amen. Amen. Um, in closing, uh, we're going through a hard time right now in America, and who knows? You know, the Lord certainly knows, but humanly, we don't know where this is all leading to. Um, it's easy for folks to get discouraged. I fight it myself when I see um, these tyrants in power. But um, sometimes, I, I think the other week, I was interviewing Pastor John Vance, and he reminded us that the gospel outreach, the gospel is growing, and he cited some examples. He, he cited China, how that tremendous growth, despite the persecution, is going on in China. And another one he mentioned was, although the number is small, some of the fastest growth is happening in Iran among the Christians. And so there's so much that God is doing in this world of his. 
I have no excuse if I'm getting down because I feel like, oh, things are getting worse and worse. Maybe I need to open my eyes a little bit, different horizons, and say, you know what? God is working in this world of his. It is, and uh, that's a constant battle because we're called to live by faith and not by sight. And yet, uh, as you've indicated there again and again, God does at times give us sight. He shows us how he is at work mightily. And one thing that's always been encouragement to me, Dan, is the rapid spiritual transformations, the rapid changes in history. Uh, People are in the thrall of bondage, and yet it seems like overnight (laughs) there is a remarkable liberation. I think in my own lifetime, and I may have mentioned it before, you, like me, grew up largely during the the uh, the Cold War, and yeah. had you told me in the mid-80s, uh, had you asked me how long will the Soviet Union be around, well, I would have said, well, maybe a hundred years, you know, yeah, maybe my sure. grandchildren would, and then between 1989 and 1991, it's gone. <laughs> I mean, it's just gone. I remember I watching on my old, uh, one of the old large, heavy TVs, and I think it was, what, uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, the Berlin Wall, watching in real time, coming down. And it was I remarkable. I was transfixed. How can this happen? <laughs> this shows, these are just two examples of how God can break down tyranny. And also, and on an even more positive side, send great revival. Uh, he did it here in the colonies early in the 18th century. The, yes. The uh, spiritual uh, life was very low, and through Jonathan Edwards and, and others. It was remarkable. Some people think of that time that, oh, everybody was a Christian. Far from it. After the founding, probably 20 or 30 years, there was a great... Uh, spiritual low, and there were not many Christians at all, but God sent great revival before uh, the 1776. Yep. And then one later, the Second Great Awakening. So uh, it's remarkable what God can do. Amen. Our guest today has been Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership. He's an ordained minister and cultural theologian. Andrew, if someone wants to look you up online, what is the web address? The best way, I'll give two of them, to see about the Center for Cultural Leadership, just check out Christian Culture, that's written as though it were one word, dot com, christianculture.com, or they can check out my personal blog, Doc Sandlin, that's written again, one word, dot com, and if they want to get on a the e-newsletter mailing list, the one we discussed, for example, in this one, they can just do a search for me at the Andrew Sandlin Substack, one word again, substack.com. Okay, that's beautiful. Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, my friend, thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you, Dan. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer 